This is episode 285 of the Beyond the Food Show. And today we have a guest, Sarah Bernacci, and we're going to discuss the link between sexual violence and food behavior. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method. And after a 25-year dieting career that started at the age of 12, I decided to say hell no to diet culture and hell yes to living my life to the fullest in my now body. And I made it my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently, unconditionally, right now. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hey, if you're new to the Going Beyond the Food Show, our podcast roadmap has been designed with you in mind. With over 250 episodes available to listen, it can feel overwhelming to know which episode to prioritize for you. The podcast guide answers the top five questions women have when they enter our world of going beyond the food to unlearn diet culture. To get your free copy of our podcast roadmap guide, head over to stephaniedozier.com forward slash roadmap or use the hyperlink in the show notes. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, sisters. Welcome back to this episode. And it is an interview today that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And I want to kind of do a disclaimer before we move forward. I typically don't do disclaimer on episode, but I have a an intuition that this one does deserve a disclaimer. This is a sensitive topic, sexual violence, and I want to invite perhaps people who have not yet worked on processing their personal experience with sexual violence in a safe environment, a therapeutic environment with a coach to be mindful in listening to this episode. Because if you haven't yet developed the skills to process your experience, process the emotion that comes with it, the thoughts, this episode may be challenging for you and reawake some memory. At the end of this podcast and also in the show note, we have put some free resources that may be something you want to go to first. With that said, I think this episode will be very powerful for all women, all people identified as women because it's not a topic that we talk often, but it actually is a fact that there is a link between sexual violence experiences and our behavior around food, our thoughts around our body image, our experience around our body, and the coping mechanism that we use around our sexual violence experience and food and body, primarily what's in comparison to the broad term of dieting or obsession with our food in our body. I have learned about trauma for about 10 years. I've known about trauma for 10 years. I have been aware of my own experience with trauma for the last eight years, and that propelled me into a journey of learning about trauma 
mentoring with some expert, taking classes and courses and spending a lot of times with teacher who specialize in the field of somatic experiencing, which is a, a technique, a tool, a methodology that helps folks process their trauma. And I've never done this journey of learning with a desire to be myself a trauma expert or help folks process their trauma, but instead to first process my own trauma and heal my nervous system. Because if you're new to the world of trauma, trauma is not in the event, but in how your nervous system embody reacts to the experience. That's why there's not one experience that can be deemed traumatic for all folks, because it depends how you react to it for a bunch of reason. So my practice over the years has become a trauma-informed practice when I was working with folks in my clinic or one-on-one. And my program now, my group coaching program, my professional training program are trauma-informed. And I always seek to have experts in the field of trauma come and teach people that I mentor my student in the world of trauma. And today, this is what we're going to do together. We have a an expert in the field of trauma, sexual violence, and food. Her name is Sarah Bernacci. She's a somatic-oriented and weight-inclusive nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and she fuses the intuitive eating practice with evidence-based therapy model to help specifically survivor of sexual violence. And this is rare, can I say? As I, as I mentioned, I've been wanting to do this podcast for about four years. And I'll tell you a little bit of background as to how this idea of podcast came into my head. But four years ago, I came across a, an analysis of research um, statistic that said that 57,000 women uh, that have been found to have experienced sexual violence or abuse as children were twice as likely to be obsessed with food. Women said they felt more physically imposing when they were in a larger body. They felt that their size helped ward off sexual advance from people identified as men, as most of them reported being abused or violated by men. And that was the trigger for me to start digging because I'm like, not only am I seeing this in the study, but I was seeing it in my practice, right? When I was taking intake from women, there was a lot of traumatic experience around sexual encounter. And that's when I discovered Dr. Vincent Filetti, and I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, from the Kaiser Permanente Institute, who is the creator of the Hayes study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, his research linking the health and behavior of adults 
with traumatic childhood experiences, what is called the ACE study. Actually, this study for many of you, you probably don't know that, originated in his research in 1985 with weight loss. Dr. Filetti was a weight loss researcher. But here's what happened. In following up with patient in his study that were dropping off from the weight loss protocol, the study, they were disappearing out of like, they had great success. Some of those folks were actually the top quote performer in his weight loss study, meaning that they were compliant to the protocol and losing, in many cases, dramatic amount of weight very quickly, but they were disappearing after a number of months, they weren't coming back in for the follow-up, the one year, two years post-follow-up. And as a good researcher, Dr. Filetti started to follow up with these folks, wanting to understand why these, quote, highly successful candidates in his research were actually not coming back. And he started to interview some of them, some of these patients, and found that 55% of these folks acknowledge a form of childhood sexual abuse. And that propelled him into the world of creating the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, as a good researcher. Although he started as a weight loss, he quickly realized when he allowed himself to dig deeper and to see beyond fat phobia, that there was a reason why this was happening in the life of Folks, if you've never yet taken the HACE study, it's kind of a quiz that you can take. It's actually very well formatted. It's free online. If you are a health practitioner, that should be included in your practice to score your clients or your patient to understand um, if they've had childhood experiences that can impact their relationship to food of their body today. I've linked to the ACE study in the show notes. It's totally free. You can go online and take it and I'll give you a score and uh, a bunch of education as to what your score means. With that being said, there's a link between our behavior around food and our body image, how we perceive our body and sexual violence. And that's what I want to talk about today with Sarah. But I also want to say that perhaps for you, your past experience may not be sexual violence, maybe it's another form of traumatic experience that can impact your relationship to food and body today. We have a number of episodes on the feed that talk about this relationship in different level. I just want to quickly outline them today here. My series, She's Beyond the Food, which is my personal story through the years of healing my relationship to food and body is a great place to hear someone else talk about their lived experience with trauma. So any episode that start with this title, She's Beyond the Food, Episode 225, where we explore post-traumatic dieting disorder with one of my mentors, Irene Lyon, is a great resource. And also episode 245, Intergenerational Trauma with Dr. Carolyn Ross, where we explore how our parent may 
have passed on their own trauma to us. And we spent a lot of time contextualizing social oppression and her specialty race issue and how that becomes a trauma in itself, pending which environment into which you live. And then today we're going to take the angle of sexual violence and how it presents itself with food and how we can use intuitive eating to heal this relationship to food that was caused by uh, sexual violence. So we're going to talk about um, that connection. We're going to talk about self-objectification and dieting. We're going to talk about how food and body is a symbolic communicator, how dieting reinforced rape culture, and how you can use intuitive eating to recover relationship to food and body. Now, before I go to the interview, I believe this is an essential listen for all women, that it is for you, that it is for someone in your life that has not yet made the connection into which you can pass on this interview to perhaps your sister, your cousin, your daughter. Knowledge is power. So with that says, I'll bring on our guest, Sarah, and we're going to deep dive into this topic. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to have this specific conversation. It's been a year of specific conversation on this podcast that been wanting to find the right people to go into the topic. And this one, the connection between sexual violence and disordered eating is something that I have observed personally for years since almost my very first day in clinic, almost nine years ago when I dug into my clients or patients at the time profile of health, too many people had sexual violence and then they had food issue. I was a baby clinician in that time. I didn't know the connection. Now today I understand it and that's what we're going to talk about today. So Sarah, how did you came to be an expert in this field? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's this, um, when I think about being an expert, I want to acknowledge to I'm always learning. There's so much to learn about this topic, both professionally and, and from our clients too. But what I observed is I've been doing straight up intuitive eating counseling for several years and was really looking to niche down. And when I was thinking about, you know, what I bring to the table and the clients that I was seeing, what I was seeing repeatedly were clients who were coming in due to emotional eating dieting, compulsive eating, past fullness, and also had a history of sexual violence of some variety. And they came in understanding that there was a link between the two, but weren't sure what that link was really about and how that may have been impacting their eating. And I think as someone who has worked in eating disorder clinics and has some training in eating disorders, we naturally start working with eating disorders with this in our back pocket, right? That this person may have had a trauma history. And I don't think we view dieting and emotional eating with the same consideration. I don't think we always um, think that maybe there is trauma there, right? And so I thought that was such a fascinating niche to maybe start to move into and to grow awareness of, of you can have eating difficulty stemming from trauma that may not meet criteria for a clinical eating disorder. And in many cases, I feel 
people are really being left out by the models that are available. Because if you are someone who maybe struggles with debilitating emotional eating or compulsive eating past wellness in response to a trauma from, from who knows when, but you don't meet criteria, you, you know, there's like the traditional eating disorders model of here's your meal plan, go to residential or an IOP or something like that. And then there's nutritionists and dietitians offering here's your meal plan. And so intuitive eating is a really nice way of bridging the gap. But I think we also need to have this awareness too of how the trauma responses are showing up in the food, regardless of whether someone has a clinical eating disorder. So what is that link? Like, what is the link between sexual violence? And we want to be clear that when we say sexual violence, we, it's kind of an umbrella term mm-hmm. for various sexual, I'm always careful on the wording, but sexual violations, I would violation. say. Violation. Okay, good term, mm-hmm. right? It's an umbrella term yeah. because it can have a wide range of experiences and eating. Why are the mm-hmm. two connected? Yeah, and I think I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one that when we think about what is there for us when nothing else is maybe there for us, food is there as a resource. So there's that. I also think that we live in a culture that so strongly objectifies women in particular and reinforces that same belief structure that we can't trust our bodies, that we can't trust ourselves, that smaller is safer, that there are, you know, you have the good foods and bad foods. So it's a way of managing our emotion, like our emotions and organizing the emotions. And so in some ways you have the sexual abuse, which can be verbal, physical, but objectification and diet culture, more broadly speaking, like our form of symbolic abuse, right? So that it continues to perpetuate over and over again. Uh, Like we can't control what has happened, right? We can't control the violation, but there's a sense that we can control our bodies and we can control our intake. And so that's where diet the diet culture comes in as a solution of here's something that you can control. Here's a way to feel safe, right? Of this like, you know, faux sense of safety that when my body looks quote unquote, right, then I'll be right. Or if I just eat in a certain way, then I'll be okay. And of course, we know that system is rigged. That's so fascinating. Because as you were talking about self objectification, that's basically what diet culture, diet culture, as you're speaking to me is a, is a a violence to women's body. Because it's telling women, A, you are your body, like you're not your brain, you're not your passions and life. No, you are your body. And Mm -hmm. you need to manipulate this body to be valuable or okay. Like you're not okay the way you are. That to me is violence. So right off the bat, that's violence. That's right. And and it's also a way of, you know, it's a rite of passage for so many of us, right? That age 13, 12, whatever it is, that you are initiated into womanhood through dieting, disordered eating, through body hatred, and then we start to bond through fat talk. And there's, you know, the research to support that too. And so we're, we're this, it's a rite of passage into womanhood. We're dieting just as like that initiator of here you go into womanhood. And then we know what happens after that. So it's kind of a two prong, right? Food is linked to sexual violence as a modulator of the traumatic experience and the pain associated with the violence. Yeah. And then 
it's the tool to protect yourself from the violence of diet culture and body image by manipulating the food kind of two prong. Is that what you're saying? Like I'm trying to simplify There's, this. Yeah. 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 Cause it is a bit of a web. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's a, it's a modulator of like, how do I manage the response? Food can be um, a way of protecting yourself against diet culture. Food also, if we think about the emotions can be a source of comfort, can be a source of punishment too. And so that relationship between you and the violator, whether it's diet culture or whatever, is also internalized in that relationship too, that we punish ourselves through restriction or we punish ourselves through eating past fullness in some cases, not all, right? But that that can exist too. So this is why I think it is so complicated because the ways that the that sexual trauma shows up can be can show up in a variety of different ways, but of knowing that there is this dynamic at play. Yeah, and I think what's important in this discussion here, I know you have a background in eating disorder, but the vast majority of people listening to this podcast are not eating disorder patients. So mm -hmm. I think understanding the scope of eating problems, I'm using air quotes here on video, like <laughs> eating problem, but yeah. eating patterns or behavioral pattern, they're not good or bad. They're just That's patterns right. of eating beyond mm -hmm. eating disorder, like beyond the traditional anorexia or bulimia, like there's so many other patterns of eating that can be a protective mechanism for sexual violence. A hundred percent. I'm thinking right off the bat because I can remember one of my first clients uh, in clinic, it was, I didn't know at the time, but it was binge eating. It wasn't an eating disorder. She was just binging uncontrollably for no quote reason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But funny enough, when I go back into the case that like the case history, her abuser was her brother. And it was when her brother was coming close to her either physically or through conversation, that's when she would use binging or food in excess to cope with that trauma. Yeah, that so, becomes kind of the voice. Yeah, exactly. So there's many mm -hmm. ways into which eating can come in to play a role into this. So um, many ways, yeah. So let's talk about how dieting or how diet culture and its pattern around food reinforce this so that we're thinking about like, labeling food or how we as professional approach food and how we actually perpetuate the cycle? Yeah, I think that, first of all, when we have this good food and bad food category, yeah. this can be so problematic. We know from the work of Judith Herman, who's a trauma specialist, that part of trauma recovery is about empowerment. It's so important for people to feel a sense of empowerment, right? And I think when we start to look at this good food, bad food narrative, how empowering is it? You know, I question to tell people what to eat or how much they can eat or when they can eat and to make these recommendations. How empowering is it going to be when we condone diet culture or we encourage weight loss and we say to them, yeah, you do need to lose weight. Your body doesn't look quote unquote right, or you don't, you know, you're unhealthy, how empowering is that going to be? And so in some ways, um, when we start to look at structured meal plans, which yes, have their place sometimes, sometimes we do need a meal plan. 
Um, but we need to be so cautious in presenting this as an option because some people are looking to us for a meal plan to get a sense of control and to continue to manage the trauma. And sometimes it can push someone further back psychologically to have these rules in place where what they really, what we really want to do is to help them to find more safety in the body, to trust themselves around food, to trust their desires around food, and to really create space for this to happen. And of course, it's really slow work at times, it can work at a snail's pace, but of really helping people to see that they can make their own food decisions, and they don't need to rely on somebody else. And so that's a big part of it that we don't want to enforce that trauma through a structured meal plan, through a diet or more food rules. What's interesting as you're saying this, again, I'm going back to some of my um, my clients when I used to do a lot of one-on-one work is that they somehow, somewhere, because food is so like binded with sexual violence, either through diet culture or response to trauma, they were using their restriction around food, right? Mm-hmm. Good and bad food, meal plan, or even wellness dieting right we know Mm -hmm. that like keto or gluten-free has a way of bringing safety and defending themselves is that what you're seeing as well I do see that as well that restriction can feel really powerful right especially when our power has been stripped from us in other ways that if I can you know that people will say this, and I've observed this in session of when I restrict there, I feel I just feel so much better, right? People will say that to us. When I when I eat or I binge, I feel awful. And when I'm restricting, I feel so great. And that makes sense within the context of a person's lived experience. If I have been deprived of, if I don't have power, which is, you know, as a woman, all I have to do is look around, then yeah, I'm probably going to feel a lot better restricting because I'm trying to find some sense of that in the culture that I live in. I'm so powerless in so many other ways that this is how it's coming out. And in the same way for people who have experienced sexual violence, there's a deep, deep sense of not being in control, obviously, right? To Mm -hmm. the trauma Mm -hmm. perpetrator, that now when you go into your relationship to food and you control, now you feel like you're, quote, in control. And that's a huge sense of safety provider. Definitely. But again, it's not genuine safety. But if you have never known anything else, it's going to feel that way. Awesome. So this is how letting letting go of the rules or becoming an intuitive eater or allowing all the food becomes the trauma healing or the recovery from sexual violence. Yeah, that the thought here of allowing all foods. And also reconnecting someone to their natural hunger and satiety cues, right, of um, of really allowing um, a full recovery from the eating behaviors as part of the trauma healing process of no longer starving, of no longer eating pestfulness habitually, of it is the allowance of all foods and the removal of the restriction is imperative to empowering the client to reconnecting them to their hunger and fullness cues and, you know, feeling safer in the body to be able to have some sense of interoceptiveness. um, And then fully allowing for those symptoms to dissolve. It's very interesting, because in the the part of our the work we do in our program with client is that we use 
what has disempowered women. So we're not focused on sexual violence for say, but when women come to us, our one of our basic rules is empowerment, and we use the tool of food as a way of rebuilding their empowerment because that's what stripped them from their power in the first place. Mm-hmm. And reconnecting them to their innate power, their eating cues to know that they're able to regulate food. So in a way, when I hear you say this is that through the use of food in trauma recovery from sexual violence, we help people feel safer, safer to be quote, not in control. That's right. Feel safer to not to be not in control. And also when we start this work, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, is all of the emotions start to come up. That yes. by doing this work, we really jog loose some of a lot of it. And so then that's why I think it's so key for therapists and nutritionists to work side by side so that as we are jogging loose some of this information, it can be processed. And likewise, so that as you're doing therapy, you're also doing nutrition work, ideally, so that you are jogging some of this loose. I work with so many clients who will say, I've been in therapy for years, decades. How is there still so much here? And it's because the food work hasn't been done. And it's been masking mm-hmm. all of this this um, this emotion, the this, this sensations underneath, right? If I've been using restriction all of this time, then it's all hidden there. And the moment I start to strip away that restriction, like an onion, all the layers are going to come up. Um and so that's a big part of it is there was, as long as there is restriction there, there's going to be pieces, there's going to be roots that are not looked at. And we start to take away some of that restriction and allowing all foods to have a place at the table and all, and, you know, and, and our desires for food to have a place at the table. That's so empowering. It's so empowering to feel like, oh, I can actually trust my desires again. And there's all of this emotion coming up to be worked through. Wow. Okay. This is fascinating because basically what this, where this last intervention or the last words you've used is that because diet culture is present, even in the therapy model or the trauma healing model of recovery, because diet culture is overcasting these two modality, we're truly not for many people healing because we're not seeing the problematic relationship to food because most practitioners are stuck themselves in diet culture. Hundred thousand million percent. Yeah. Can we just have a mind blowing moment here? <laughs> because that, that explains so many intervention or interviews I've had with the past with some of the word leading experts in trauma, which I could not, go in depth in a conversation because they could not get past fatness means it's not healthy or there's better or good food. Like we can never get to that depth of conversation because they had this diet culture. They weren't clean of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at it from the, you know, medical model and I think there's an assumption that, you know, unless someone is weight suppressed and by that, you know, we obviously mean people who are of a, you know, BMI of, you know, an underweight BMI, quote unquote, right. And we, I, I could go on about that separate episode, mm-hmm. but 
if someone's in the room, like if you're a, a trauma professional and someone's in the room with you and you only recognize eating difficulties in people who have a BMI of under 18, you're missing out on so many people because we know that only 6% of diagnosed eating disorders have a BMI of under 18. And in dieting, you know, certainly that's not the case either. And so you're missing so much when that's the lens on it. Wow. So this is so for people listening to this that may have been experienced sexual violence as a broad umbrella, like all kinds of different experiences. And you're listening to this and trying to be an intuitive eater, your other therapists, you got to check in if they're cut up themselves in diet culture, because they may not be able to help you get to where you want to be. Because you have kind of two mentality running opposing each other. That's, that's correct. And I also think this is something for nutrition professionals to be aware of as well. There's an assumption that we do the food work, which depending on what you do in your session could be just meal planning, could be intuitive eating counseling combined with meal planning, could be more nutrition therapy. But if you're just doing meal planning with someone, and then you're referring that person out to therapy to deal with like, quote, unquote, everything else, which is a huge umbrella. My experience has been that, you know, unless you're working with an eating disorder therapist, they're probably not going to go anywhere near the food stuff. And even if they are an eating disorder therapist, they may not examine the behaviors in the way that you would like them to in order to get at the root. And so this is a space for us to come in. And I'm not mm. suggesting that we go into the details of the trauma, that's not within our scope, but really to shine a light on, hey, you know, I'm observing this particular thing with food or like really starting to ask these eliciting questions so that they can help you can help them to see that for themselves. And then they can say, Oh, I never thought of it this way before. And they can take it into the therapy room and address it. And so that's why our work is so valuable when it comes to trauma recovery, because often there's a number of pieces that do get missed when, when we're not in the room with someone. Yeah, this is why. So this is the other part of my business where I train professional to the non diet approach, right? And what we're seeing, especially in, in with our last cohort, is people from multiple backgrounds are coming in, right? We're talking therapists, we're talking social workers and fitness professionals because we need this non-diet approach to help to permeate all healing profession, not just That's nutrition. Right. Yes. Everyone needs to be trauma-informed. That's my opinion, my very strong opinion. And everyone needs to have an understanding of what the anti-diet movement is, regardless of their opinion on that too. What does that mean being trauma-informed for the people listening versus a trauma-healing professional? Yeah, I think it means, uh, you know, being able to identify trauma in the room. It means creating safety in the space. I think it means um, a lot of empathy and compassion I think it means asking questions and forming allyship with someone. So as opposed to the sort of colonial relationship that we're taught to have with clients of how do we have a collaborative relationship so that we are teammates. And so I'm not telling you what to do or what you need to do, but that I can really help you to find out what's best for you and cultivate that agency. So to me, that's what it means. And also um, how to work with, you know, how to work at a pace that really matches the client, I think is another part of it. And I would also include the somatic piece in that too, around, can we help clients to regulate? Can we track in session? Um, what are we noticing happening to that person? 
uh, that's a big piece of it too for me. So trauma and form for people listening is when the pro- the medical professional or the professional in general you're working with has an understanding of how trauma occur and how it shows up in the human body in general, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not the person who's going to help you process the sexual violence or the trauma in general and do the healing. This trauma-informed practitioner will be able to recognize it and then refer you to the appropriate person and work alongside with this other individual who will help you process the trauma. Did I get this right? That's exactly right. You took the words that I wanted to say and just, yeah, and you shared them. That's perfect. It's very important to understand because wellness culture right now in 2021, no matter when you listen to this. So in 2021 and 2020, there's this trend in the wellness culture to become, quote, trauma informed. And I Mm -hmm. think there's a right way of being a trauma informed as a nutritionist. And then there's the dangerous way where you think you can help somebody process their trauma. Some leader in the industry currently are going way too far as far as teaching people how to be trauma informed. It's very important to understand the difference between the two, even from you listener as a client, a trauma informed person is not the person to help you process your trauma. Two different Mm -hmm. worlds. (laughs) Two different worlds. And it's true that sometimes the food and body image stuff will come up into our room, like the, the emotion. And I would offer that we can be with that emotion. If that's something we can feel that we feel comfortable doing, but absolutely the processing needs to happen with a qualified practitioner. I'm going to say like therapist, psychologist, someone who is, is working um, on the psychological realm. And our work really is just about, can I recognize when it's in the room with me and can I operate safely with this person with given this knowledge that I have? So it's really about safety on our end. So let's talk about body image, right? Sure. Because so, so far we've talked a lot about how food intersect with sexual violence, but I think there's a, another occurrence in people's life where body image, body hatred mm-hmm. intersects with sexual violence as well. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yes, I will do my best. To, yeah, yes. it's a big one. Um, in general, I think it's important that we recognize that when we speak about the body and we speak about food, that we're also speaking in code. That I never take anything at face value anymore when it comes to body image and food concerns. So I really love, uh, there's a life coach named Rachel Cole, and she talks about weight loss as a secondary hunger. And so what I'm always thinking about is, what's the primary hunger? So what is the desire underneath all of this? So in the case of body image, if someone feels really uncomfortable in their body, if someone feels too big, well, what else feels really big? Or what else feels really uncomfortable? And understanding that our bodies are a landing pad for the emotions for our emotional world that doesn't often get or rarely gets any kind of airplay at all. And when you grow up in a culture that teaches you that you can change your life by changing your body, or you can change the way you feel by changing your body, that's really compelling. But what we really want to do as professionals is start to separate to unhook them of what is emotional and what is body. Because, you know, people will look at photos and say, oh, I looked so great. But, you know, I love the way I look then looking back. But 
I didn't see it at the time. So we know this is not a body concern. It's a body image concern. Or, uh, you know, a few days ago, I loved the way I looked or I was okay in my body. I was wearing crop tops. And a few days later, I just hate my body. Well, what has changed in the span of three or four days? Because certainly our bodies don't change that much. And so it's the emotional world that's really operating here. And so when we talk about this intersection between sexual violence and body image, there is the, I mean, in general, there always is this emotional piece. And also the sexual the the violation itself may be showing up in I'm trying to get smaller I'm trying to get control and like I don't want to talk about the other manifestations because they can come across as a bit fat phobic but like there's different ways of um manipulate trying to manipulate the body to create safety one way or the other well I, I'm gonna go there because I'm in the fat body okay. so I'll say it so okay. and I've seen that in my practice as well where subconsciously, totally unconsciously, women <laughs> were using quote food, right, their eating behavior, as a way of pre- or changing their body getting into a, f- a bigger body. So they wouldn't be attractive to the group of people who perpetrated violence against their body, mainly men, right? Mm-hmm. So it yeah. was a way of protecting themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was 100% subconscious. Yes. And that can happen with the caveat, of course, that like, it's not always about protection, right? No, no. <laughs> and I know we're both on the same page with that. But that's where I see the other the other thing that I have seen in the past is when we talk about sexual violence, it's typically done. There's some verbal violence, but a lot of it occur on the body, right? Either through touch or different um, aggression and hating on the thing that gave you pain is also a form of defense or management of pain. So hating the thing, the body that caused you so much pain is also a mechanism of defense. Is that? Yes. Yes. And also it's like my body, this, I think there was this idea too, if my body didn't look the way it it does, then I wouldn't have had that experience. And because I had that experience means my body is wrong. Instead of obviously the person perpetrating the sexual violence, it becomes about us, which is exactly the same model of diet culture, right? Diet culture says the diet works. You're the problem. You're the problem, right? It's a really can, it's a compartmentalization, right? Of it's easier to say I'm the problem. My body is the problem than it is to say, well, here's this big problem out there that we can't easily solve because that's powerlessness. And that you feel that you don't have control you don't have any control, then there's only surrender. And that's, that's really big. And so, yeah, the body starts to take on this role of once my body looks okay, then I'll be okay. But you know, yeah. that's not a, well, in, in cognitive behavior therapy, the, the self coaching model, we teach our client, we call that mental filtering, right? Our life is filtered through our body. We're having a good day when we have a good body image day. We have a bad day when we have a body image day. Our body takes the blame for everything that goes right or wrong in our life. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about another point you wanted us to cover was how dieting reinforces rape culture. Yeah. I'm not like, I'm so not versed into this. So I will let you talk about this (laughs) because I have no clue on this one. Yeah. I think it goes back to what we spoke about regarding the good foods and bad foods um, and that disempowerment around that. And I also love um, what Elise Resch said 
in an article where, you know, she said how, um, I do have a quote somewhere, maybe I can find it really quickly, because that would be, I don't want to misquote what she said. Um, Yeah, she said, I think the Me Too movement has had a huge impact. Women are tired of being told their value is based on their size or shape, and they're tired of not enjoying their food. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, that's so accurate because we do see this that the intuitive eating movement started to really gain ground and become a lot you know trendier as the me too movement started to and yes. you know come in our spaces right and so there is this rejection of dieting rejection of being told what to do with our bodies that are com- that's coming up and so this is how i see these two as being related starting with elisa's really brilliant observation of we don't want to be told what to do with our bodies that's very fascinating because you are told, well, she is totally right that there is a link between the two. And it's, I think it's women waking up to the concept of patriarchy in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With yes. all that's under player, diet culture and rape culture and so forth. Like there's many things that go under that. But as mm-hmm. a whole, we're waking up to this bigger thing that drives all of it. That's right. And the objectification piece, again, that dieting enforces objectification, our bodies as objects, as projects, a before and after, um, as these, you know, these items that need to be changed and manipulated. And so we see, of course, like, yes, there's rape culture, and there's diet culture. And of course, they're related, because you can't live in the society and be treated as an object and then be so surprised when you're treated like an object. Absolutely. And you know, it's home. Oh, I'm having so many light bulb moments. I remember on on the Instagram on the gram, seeing a meme from a, a feminist page of a woman in 19, I want to say 1979. It was a woman being put in front of a judge in the US for wearing clothes that were too revealing and provoking the rape. Mm-hmm. And that woman was forced to model the clothes in front of the judge so that the judge can determine if the clothes were revealing enough to provoke the rape. How effed up is that? This is just like 40 years ago. Yeah. This is yeah. not like hundreds of years ago. This is 40 years ago. This is how new we are and the awakening that that is not okay. Yes, that's right. There's so much censorship and so much of trying to control women. And we look at like, even like women's ability to own property or women's, uh, the, you know, women as equal persons in the US that have that bill hasn't been ratified. Like, we don't have ownership over our bodies. And this is a very big problem. And it's one that diet culture continues to reiterate, like, you don't actually own your body, it needs to look a certain way. Uh, There's, you know, self-acceptance and liking your body is not that feels so counterintuitive sometimes because nowhere are we encouraged to do that we're encouraged to constantly treat our bodies as projects as items to be owned by other people either visually um or or like you know like an actual arrangement and it's okay to expose those bodies to violence because they're not really something that are quote valuable in our society because they're women's body. Yeah. And a woman's body is only valuable if it, you know, matches the thin ideal, right? That our worth is only in our size. 
Yeah. So we all, as women listening to this, we all have to understand. I think that's another layer of understanding why it's happening, why there's sexual violence and how we use food and how it intersects with diet culture. But it's also understanding why so much of this is happening to us as women is because it's only been, I don't know, 30 years that we are protected by society to have a woman's body. Just 40 years ago, we weren't. Like if our body, like the example I was giving, like like to have the way we dressed our body could have been the allowance for us to be violated. Like how fucked up is that? It's so fucked up. Yeah. That that becomes a permission slip. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So we talked about body image. We talked about food, diet, culture. Now let's go to a place of solution. Let's go to a place Mm -hmm. of then what? Now that we understand all these various buckets and how it interplays with sexual violence and, and I think it's it's probably going to have a lot of ha-ha moments for women listening to this. Like, I never thought what had happened to me played into my relationship to food and body. Here we are. We've exposed that. Now, what do we do? Yeah. And so, I mean, of course, this is a massive undertaking. Yes. But I think in the world of nutrition, of what can we do here in our rooms, I think when taking the time to do the training to become trauma-informed as practitioners. Okay. Number two, when we see, when we suspect there could be trauma in the room, making a referral to a therapist and having some referrals um, that you can offer to the client. Three, I think intuitive eating counseling is going to come as no surprise to anyone who knows me is a wonderful modality for working with people in conjunction with other techniques. And so that may be, you know, my preference is for some somatic approaches and for, you know, internal family systems um, and using some of that to support people. But ideally, intuitive eating combined with some other strategies, because it's going to be very difficult for someone to get in their body and to start with like honoring hunger and all of this, if the body doesn't feel safe. So you really want to help someone to start to feel safe, first and foremost, to slow down, right? Like, Mindful eating, that can be a very fine approach, but if someone doesn't feel safe enough to slow down, that's going to feel kind of impossible. So you want to help someone to feel safe enough to slow down, to start to create some safety in the body, safety with you through that attunement that's happening, that co-regulation, and then start to move them towards a more intuitive approach with their consent always. And so I think that's that's a big piece of it, of becoming trauma-informed, the referrals, um, going really slowly with them in session, having the necessary tools. If you don't have that, referring to another nutrition professional that you suspect might have those tools so that the the person can be um, ethically supported. And then from there, each one of us doing our own unlearning when it comes to objectification and Um, seeing how this shows up in the world. I'm often told how not everything has to do with diet culture. And I would argue that everything has to do with diet culture. It is everywhere. It's the water we live in, right? And so really thinking about uh, all of us in really broad strokes of, you know, what am I not seeing that's here with me? How have my beliefs about my body and my worth been, you know, defined, shaped by the culture that I live in and really being so critical of that. And I think feminist 
theory is a great place to, to start of reading the beauty myth. That's a wonderful text. And of really doing the research necessary to understand how we've come to this place where we view our bodies as the most important thing we have to offer. Yeah, we have to do as so for the practitioner listening, we have to do our own work, which is essential before we try to help someone else. If it's a, a client that's listening to this, I'm thinking general population, mm-hmm. and they're just uncovering that there is a link between the two. Mm-hmm. What, where do they start? They can start by contacting uh, a nutrition professional or a therapist mm-hmm. or both. I think that's a really wonderful place to start. If that is not accessible at this time for whatever reason, I think even reading the intuitive eating book of starting to immerse themselves in anti-diet materials, I think is a wonderful starting place. Do you and certainly have, not dieting? Well, I think it's scary. I think the first place, yeah. be, right? So if you're somebody who's just through this podcast or other resources, you're just being confronted with the fact that there's a link between your desire to control food and your body mm-hmm. with a prior experience. First of all, you got to sit with this for a bit because your brain is probably yeah. going like to like say all kinds of things about this. So if you can get resources to help you process the connection, that's great. But also just, I think what you offered, which is reflection and just ask yourself deeper question to where diet culture and objectification shows up in your life. So you can see the depth of it and how much this is why you're trying to control food and body. It's nothing is wrong with you. It's just Mm -hmm. all this influence coming into you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that point too, around reflection and just being with it because it is really scary. It is terrifying to, start to do this work, especially if your primary source of safety has been in a thin body or has been with dieting all of this time. So really normalizing that too, that um, it makes sense. If it's scary to you, of course, it's scary. Of course, it's going to bring up anxiety. You've never had an experience of having body acceptance and feeling safe, right? So that's brand new. And that there isn't uh, an urgency. You don't need to move fast through this work. It's not a competition. That this really is a process. It's a practice. And so feeling free to take your time to take in little droplets as you can build, as you build capacity for it. That, of course, people are not going to wake up one day and be like, I'm health at every size and I love my body. That's not how this works. Although it'd be wonderful if we can get people there faster. So sometimes it's just about you know, adding in these little droplets as we are able to digest them. And it's amazing how those droplets really, you know, do add up. And over the years, we have a completely different life. And so that that's a big piece of what I would offer too. And I, w- I want to give an analogy for people listening. It's like putting fertilizer on the grass. It's like you're putting new grass on your front lawn and then you put fertilizer. Every drop of information that you read the book of intuitive eating or the beauty myth, it's like putting fertilizer for this new grass to grow, mm-hmm. to become stronger and stronger and stronger. And then when you feel ready, you can go seek help to help you adopt intuitive eating into your life. So let's talk about specific resources and what people should look for. So mm-hmm. if women, so we talked about the intuitive eating book, right, by Evelyn Traboli and Ilis Roche, we talked about the beauty mint by Naomi Wolf, right? These are books, pretty much yeah. most people, vast majority of people can afford that. 
-hmm. Let's move on to the next layer, which is I want to work on my relationship to food and body. Then I'm assuming looking for a practitioner that is an intuitive eating certified counselor. Yes. So looking for a practitioner, certified intuitive eating counselor. And ideally, if you can find someone who also has some trauma training or advanced nutrition counseling skills training would be ideal. Um, So I like I've always I've worked with Tracy Brown for, you know, about a year, like very intensely. Mm -hmm. And she has taught me so much about trauma and being a trauma informed practitioner. And she has trained other practitioners. So for practitioners looking to become trauma informed. So she's a great resource. And also looking for people who have had training with her, I think is great. I would also suggest certified intuitive eating counselors who've done some training regarding the nervous system. It's probably quite helpful too. And so there's a few different ways you can look at it, but finding someone who does have, you know, trauma training or asking them just saying like, what has your experience been like working with people who have trauma Uh, Who are the clients that you typically work with and getting a sense about that? So let's talk about you. That's the type of work you do, right? You specialize in working with women who have this lived experience, call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most of the clients that I work with now generally have trauma and we are working on a nutrition piece within that context. So that typically is who I work with now. I I don't often do straight up intuitive eating counseling anymore. (laughs) Okay. And we need people like you. So I'm assuming it's sarahbernache.com. Is that where people yeah. find you? Yeah, people can find me at sarahbernache.com. Okay, cool. So obviously, we'll put the link. You talked about Tracy Brown. We'll yes. put the link. You'll send me the link. We'll put it in the show notes. But I'm assuming she has a counselor registry of people she train or she offers referral. I, I don't know if she has a registry at this point, but um, we can probably get a list of someone from her too. Okay, perfect. And then looking for practitioners that have trauma-informed or nervous system specialty Mm -hmm. would be that. Okay. Any other resource you would like to put in front of people? I'm trying to think. I don't think so at this time. Um, Really just finding a, a therapist who you trust, who is competent in the areas that you need them to be. And then finding a nutrition professional who's competent in those areas. And I would also offer that if you can find a good group that can be really supportive too of being with people who are going through something similar. I think we cannot understate the value of community. So that's a big part of it too. Awesome. This was a fascinating interview and something that I've been wanting. I think we've just scratched the surface here. We're just like mm-hmm. giving people the basic 101 there's mm-hmm. so much more. I mean, we could dive into so much more, but I think this is it's going to be a very good resource for people to understand the link and then to get themselves to move on to the next step in the future. So it's been a, a pleasure talking to you, Sarah. Yeah, likewise. It's been wonderful. Hey, sisters. I hope that this episode will help you or someone in your life that have not yet connected the dot between their sexual violence experience and their current relationship to food and body, especially for some of you who have perhaps started their journey with intuitive eating, but couldn't understand why things weren't clicking. This could be it. We have a number of resources for you. Uh, We have free resources and we also have 
uh, paid resources. So let me go through them quickly. In the show notes, you will find free resources for American citizen or US-based listener. Uh, We've included a national hotline that serves people affected by sexual violence. The hotline number is 1-800-656-HOPE, H-O-P-E. If you're a Canadian listener, based on my research, it appears that the resources are by provinces. However, one stood out, uh, the Assaulted Women Helpline from Ontario, and the number is 1-866-863-0511. And they do have a disclaimer that they will reroute you to local resources in Canada, which probably will be by province. If you are from another country, you can Google free resources, sexual violence, and in the name of your country, and there's local resources that will come up. If you are in a privileged situation and you would like to approach your relationship to food and body, I would highly recommend working with Sarah. Our website or social media are listed in the show note. If you are wanting to work with a local practitioner, here's what you should be looking for. A certified practitioner that has trauma-informed training specify in their credential or in their bio, which means that this practitioner has been educated and trained to understand the link between the nervous system, trauma, and behavior. So if you go to the Certified Intuitive Eating Counselor directory, you can scroll through and you will find a number of practitioners that have trauma-informed in their bio. And these are great folks that will understand what we just spent the last hour talking about. All the graduates from our training program, the Beyond the Food Mentorship Program, are trauma-informed practitioner. It's part of our curriculum. If you need further referral, feel free to send us an email at info at stephaniedoze.com and we will attempt to help you find someone locally. With that said, I love you, my sister, and I look forward to hang out with you on the next episode.